This evening, God speaks to us through two Scripture passages. I'd like to invite you to turn with me this evening to Matthew chapter 28. and We're going to look at verse 19. And then we'll also, afterwards, turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Then we'll give our intention our attention, excuse me, to the summary of God's Word as revealed in the Heidelberg Catechism. But first, our Scripture reading from Matthew 28. Our meditation will be from verse 19, but let's begin our reading in verse 18, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, just three verses. It says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. And then we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll read beginning in verse 11 to verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, beginning beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in forth as as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here ends the reading of God's Word. Let us now turn to, in our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 26. Lord's Day 26, which can be found on page 228 of the Forms and Prayers book in the pew in front of you. Page 228. Beginning in question 69, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice upon the cross benefits you personally? And together we respond in this way. Christ instituted this outward washing 
and with it promised that as surely as water washes away the dirt from the body, so certainly His blood and His Spirit wash away my soul's impurity, that is, all my sins. What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and Spirit? To be washed with Christ's blood means that God by grace has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in His sacrifice on the cross. To be washed with Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed and sanctified us to be members of Christ so that the more and more we die to sin and live holy and blameless lives. Question 71. Where does Christ promise that we are washed with His blood and Spirit as surely as we are washed with the water of baptism? In the institution of baptism, where He says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. This promise is repeated when Scripture calls baptism the washing of regeneration and the washing away of sins. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, the last time you were at a wedding, after the bride and groom said their vows that they would be loving and faithful to one another in good times and bad, in rich or poor, in sickness or health, I'm willing to bet this evening that they would exchange wedding rings after. The pastor would then probably make some remarks about how the gold of a wedding band represents the purity and the beauty of marriage. And how a wedding ring is in a complete circle which represents the longevity of their commitment to one another. A wedding band is a sign that you are married. And it is also a seal of ownership upon one another. It is a declaration to the couple. It is also a declaration to everyone else of the covenant you have made in marriage. Now, the band of gold that my wife Lisa placed upon my finger some seven years ago did not make me married. But it has significance attached to it. Very important, the key point here is that this band of gold represents the reality of my relationship with my wife. It is an outward sign of her ownership of me. It is a sign to everyone else, but it is a seal of ownership of one another. In many ways, this is what Lord's Day 26 is about. Not about wedding bands, but about the relationship between the sign of baptism and Jesus' seal of ownership upon those who He baptizes. 
it's not just a religious ceremony, but it's Jesus' claim upon His people. What I want to show you this evening in our time together is that the Bible actually ascribes a high value to baptism. That it's not just a sign. It's not an empty ritual. But it is the very evidence of our union with Christ. That when you were baptized, you were baptized into Jesus. Our theme for our time together this morning is that baptism is a sign and a seal of union with Jesus by faith. Baptism is a sign and a seal of our union with Jesus by faith. And I want to show you this in three points this evening. That it's Christ's baptism, it's Christ's work, and it's Christ's promise. It's Christ's baptism, it's Christ's work, and it's Christ's promise. You see, the first thing that the instructor wants to draw our attention to this evening is that it's Christ's baptism. That the baptism we participate in in the Christian church belongs to and was instituted by Christ on the eve of His ascension. Our first Scripture reading this evening from Matthew 28 makes this very clear when it says Jesus said these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus' last command to His disciples on earth. The next day, He would ascend into heaven and He is now sending out the apostles into the world. And He is telling us that the first step in discipling the nations, the first step in the growth of the church and the success of the kingdom of God is baptism. And the catechism says it's important that it was instituted by Christ. This is a theme that we're going to see throughout the next five Lord's Days. Lord's Days 26 through 30. That the sacraments only exist by the appointment of Jesus Christ. The sacraments only exist by the appointment of Jesus Christ. If you flip back in your catechisms to question 66, when asked what is a sacrament or what are sacraments, remember what we talked about last week. That a sacrament is that which was instituted by Christ, which was that which is physical. It needs to be visible, be able to see with your eyes, but illustrates a spiritual reality and will be done throughout the ages. The point is this, that the only sacraments that nourish our faith, the only sacraments that really help us in this life, are the ones that Jesus has given the church. And the church of Jesus Christ does not have the authority to start a new sacrament 
And the church of Jesus Christ doesn't have the right to administer the sacrament in whatever way we choose. They don't belong to us. The sacraments ultimately belong to Jesus Christ. And if they belong to Him, He is the one who has the authority to delegate who is baptized, how baptism is done, and what it means. Now, I suspect that some of you might notice something here in question 26. When it says Christ outward, or excuse me, question 69 of Lord's Day 26, that Christ instituted this outward washing. But we know that long before Jesus ever gave us that baptismal formulary, that there was somebody who for years was doing baptizing before Jesus came. Namely, John the Baptist. But the Catechism is saying that that is not the baptism we participate in. If you flip with me in your Bibles earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist himself makes this distinction. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, he tells us that his baptism is different than the baptism that Christ will bring. He says in chapter 3, verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me, who is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John says, my baptism is not the baptism of Christ. His baptism is a baptism of repentance. What I'm trying to show you this evening is that Jesus' baptism is a baptism of union. Jesus' baptism is a baptism of union. Catechism is helping us here by saying, Make sure that you are not identifying your baptism with anyone else but Jesus Christ. It's not John's baptism. It's not Paul's baptism. It's not Reformed baptism, Lutheran baptism, Methodist baptism, Catholic baptism. Your baptism ultimately needs to be associated with the Lord of baptism. Jesus Christ. And so the baptism that we are participating in, should it be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, done in the church, is the baptism of the Great Commission. And is the baptism given to us by Jesus. So if we want to understand baptism, we need to look at the words of the Great Commission. So look again with me at Matthew chapter 28 where Jesus says these words, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Here's the key phrase, baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The phrase I want you to notice is that term, baptizing them into. This phrase comes up a few more times in the New Testament. Uh, Once in 1 Corinthians 10 and a second time in 1 Corinthians 1. And what it's expressing is a being joined together. It's expressing a 
union with someone else. And ultimately, we'll learn later in the New Testament, it expresses a union with Christ. But I want you to notice with me today that the words of our Lord are much more inclusive than just union with Jesus. But it's a union. We're given a relationship with a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That when you were baptized, you were baptized into the name of the Father, into the name of the creating and the eternal covenant-keeping God. The God who promised in His providence to use all His resources for your good and to never forsake you or leave you. That you were baptized in the name of the Son into the redemption that He brings. The washing away of my soul's impurity. And that when you were baptized into the name of the Spirit, you were baptized into the name of the sanctifying God who promises to present the church before the Father without spot, wrinkle, or blemish. This is the God we have union with in baptism. The Catechism says this should be a shining light in our lives. We often don't think about it this way, but baptism is an assurance for our faith. Look with me at the question 69 here, Lord's Day 26. It says, how does holy baptism remind and assure you that Christ's one sacrifice on the cross benefits you personally. Do you see how personal this question is? And it uses bold language. That baptism assures me, look at the end of the question, that all my sins are forgiven doesn't say that I will be washed, but that I am cleansed from them. That I am cleansed from my sins by faith in Christ just as much as I have been baptized. The spiritual element of baptism is just as sure as the actual act of baptism by faith. Some of us say, well, let me rephrase that. Do we realize how powerful these words are? That all my sins are forgiven. Satan will try to tempt us That most of your sins are forgiven, but not all your sins are forgiven. But Jesus gave us baptism to assure us that every sin has been paid for past, present, and future. Well, you say, well, what about my sin of spiting God once? What about my problems with my spouse 
that have so plagued my family and hurt my children? What about the abuse of substances? What about the really bad sins? No, baptism is a sign that every sin has been forgiven. And when Satan tries to tempt us that God will forgive some of our sins, but not forgive all of our sins, we'll have to tell him, get behind the baptismal font, Satan. Because God promised to me that all my sins were washed away. It cannot be otherwise. He Himself has promised. There may be some parents here who have children who you presented for baptism many years ago who have strayed from the covenant promise. Hear this this evening. No one ever gets rid of their baptism. It is God's mark. And no amount of smudging of Satan can get rid of it. And we need to constantly be in prayer. The parable I go back to so often is from Luke 18. The persistent widow keeps going to the judge. Hear my cause. Hear my cause. Hear my cause. And one day the Lord answers. Be persistent and praying that God would apply the truths of His promise to your children. But I also want to speak to our children here this evening. Remember that baptism, Paul tells us, is a grave. That we're baptized not only into the life of Jesus, but we're baptized into the death of Jesus. And you can drown in the baptismal water. Not that there's that much water in there. But when we are baptized into the death of Christ, it's only by faith that we rise out of the grave with Christ. If we reject the promise, we remain in the grave. And it's only by faith in the promises of God that we rise with Christ. When Christ instituted baptism... He gave us both a tool and a warning. It's His baptism. But did you notice in Lord's Day 26 how many times in just three questions it mentions the name of Jesus Christ? It's mentioned, His name is mentioned eight times in just three questions. And we are in the section, as we spoke about last week, that refers to the ministry of the church. And on Lord's Day 26 and 27, we're talking about baptism. It's under the heading of baptism. But eight times it mentions Jesus Christ. He is the subject, if you will, of Lord's Day 26. And the catechism is reminding us here that baptism is ultimately a work of of Christ. Notice in question 70, to be washed in Christ's blood means that who? God by His power. Or by His grace, excuse me. Or to be washed in Christ's Spirit means that the Holy Spirit has renewed. Baptism is not what we bring to the font. 
It's not what the pastor brings. It's not magical water. But it's about what Christ does in baptism. And if we really want to understand baptism, we do always need to go back to the Old Testament. In order to understand the sacrament of baptism and being sprinkled with water correctly, I think we should go back to the Old Testament's view of being sprinkled in blood. And for for that which we'll turn to Hebrews chapter 9, our second Scripture reading this evening. We're in the ninth chapter of Hebrews. The author is rehearsing at length the details of the furniture found in the Old Testament tabernacle. And in the first ten verses, he's giving a lengthy description of the golden lampstand, a lengthy description of the table, the bread of the presence, and of course the curtain behind which was the Holy of Holies. And the reason that the author gives this description is because that the only way that the high priest was allowed to be in the presence of God is if he was washed, he says, with the blood of bulls and goats. And all the elements in the tabernacle needed to be sprinkled with blood. That's what it says at verse 22. Almost everything is purified with blood. But all of this changed in the coming of Christ. We read in verse 11, Jesus appeared through the greater and more perfect tent. Not with blood of bulls and goats, but with His own blood, He entered into the heavenly tabernacle. And the same thing that the Old Testament priests, when they sprinkled blood on all the elements and they sprinkled blood upon themselves, the author of Hebrews says, so did Jesus do when He died upon the cross, when He rose from the dead, and He ascended into heaven. He went into heaven, which was a type, excuse me, the earthly tabernacle was a type of the things in heaven. And he went into heaven and he sprinkled the tabernacle of God, the mercy seat of God, with his blood. He sprinkled the heavenly elements with his blood, so to speak. Well, you might be saying this evening, well, what does that have to do with baptism? But the tabernacle in the Old Testament and the priests were not the only thing sprinkled with blood. In fact, we read in Exodus chapter 24, in the first eight verses there, and Leviticus 14, verses 1 through 9, that when Israel had been delivered from the land of slavery, that to seal the covenant, Moses took blood. He took bowls of calves' blood and goats' blood. And he sprinkled the people with the blood of bulls and goats. We read this. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 9. It says, Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself representing God and the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, He sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. 
he would have taken a stick with some wool on top and some hyssop branches sticking out of it. He would dip it in the blood and he flung it across the people, sprinkling the people, walking through the crowd. And this was no small feat. Numbers chapter 1 tells us that there were upwards of 2 million people present when Moses made the covenant on Mount Sinai with his people there. 2 million people sprinkled with the blood of bulls and goats as the sign of the covenant that they had made with God. Men, women, boys, girls covered polka dot red as they went home that evening. Do you see what Hebrews is saying here? When Jesus went to heaven and He sprinkled the heavenly tabernacle with His blood, and He sprinkled the mercy seat with the forgiveness of sins in His blood, so does Jesus also wash His people with His blood. Jesus sprinkles you with His blood. The Catechism says that's what Jesus is doing in baptism. To be washed in Christ's blood means that God by His grace has forgiven our sins because of Christ's blood poured out for us in His sacrifice upon the cross. The blood of sprinkling represents one thing. The forgiveness of sins. And when we sprinkle water upon the heads of our infants, sprinkle water upon adult converts who had not been baptized yet before, it is a symbol. It is a sign of the blood of Christ that was poured out for you upon the cross. But there's also a double cleansing. See, Christ in baptism does not just sprinkle us with the forgiveness of sins, but He also sprinkles us, it says, with His Spirit. We need to be washed in the renewed life. Washed in the Spirit of Christ. Baptism not only forgives us of our sin, but it also calls us to live a sanctified life. To live, the catechism says, holy and blameless lives. And this is what John spoke about. We read in Matthew chapter 3 when it says, I give you a baptism of repentance, but He who comes will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You see, baptism represents not just a part of the life of Jesus, His death, but it represents the whole of His life, also His resurrection. That in baptism, in union with Jesus, His life, His death, and even His resurrection are now ours. He takes away our sins, but He also insists that we live a sanctified life. Now, if you've never touched the water here in baptism, it's not hot. It's actually quite lukewarm. We do that intentionally. 
It's not meant to be painful. But what John is telling us is that there is a cleansing that must be involved. A purifying. There needs to be a burning that comes in baptism. In other words, it's going to hurt. Not physically. We're not trying to harm children when we baptize a child. But it's going to burn you if you take seriously baptism's call. Because you are called at the baptismal font not only to trust in the forgiveness of Christ or Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, but you are also called to put to death your flesh. To put to death your old man. And to live for Christ. We cannot separate these two things. To be baptized with water and to have your guilt and your sins washed away is appealing and painless, but we cannot have one without the other, can we? If you accept the cleansing, you are also called to accept the purifying. The purifying brings the painful dying off, the becoming dead to sin. The water is painless, but the fire will burn. Well, let's apply this to our lives this evening. You see, sometimes it can be tempting to think of the sacraments as rites which we perform, as if it's related to the human action. And it's true. There is obligations that we make when we are baptized or present someone for baptism. But notice here that the main part of baptism lies elsewhere. Preeminently, baptism is about what God will do or has done. And it brings us into direct conflict with the grace of God powerfully at work in us. It's about union with Jesus. And finally, baptism is Christ's promise. It's a sacrament instituted by Christ. It's a sign. It's a seal of union with Him. But it's also, I want you to notice and consider the promises Jesus made concerning baptism. Our catechism lists a trio of biblical proof texts here from Matthew 28, verse 19, which we've already read, Matthew 6, or Mark 16, verse 16, and Titus 3, verse 5. And these are just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the Scripture's teaching on baptism. But I want you to notice very quickly just one thing about all three of these verses. They're really all talking about one promise, aren't they? It's a promise of salvation. That in baptism, what is promised is salvation by faith in Christ. It uses such strong language here. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There is a promise of union we've already noted with the triune God. Even stronger, whoever believes and and is baptized 
will be saved. It's the washing of regeneration. It's the washing away of sins. What's being promised here is salvation. Inevitably, a young child will come to me this evening and ask me, well, what if somebody dies and is not baptized? Yes, if somebody is providentially hindered in trust in Christ, they will be saved. Think of the thief on the cross. But what it's telling you is that you're given a special assurance in baptized when you are baptized. That as surely as you have been baptized and believe, you will be saved. Have you been baptized? Do you trust in Christ? The catechism is reminding us of the promises of Jesus. You will be saved. Here is the application, my friends. Whether you are young or whether you are old, whether you've been in the church a long time or whether you've just recently come to faith, whether you were baptized as an infant or whether you were baptized as an adult, we need to trust Christ's promises. He has given us a sign. He has marked us as His own. And it is a beautiful picture of our union in Christ's life, His death, and His resurrection. Trust in Him, says baptism, and you will be saved. Amen. Let us pray. Merciful God, we do give You thanks for the gift of baptism that, Lord, You have shown us visibly and marked us as Your own that we have union with You. Not by the work of our own hands, but by trusting in You and trusting in the means of grace, the preaching of the Word, and the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Yet, Father, we know that our faith is so weak. And so often we struggle to comprehend and embrace Your truths. We give You thanks that You have given us this visible token of our faith. And we ask, Lord, that You would strengthen our faith through these means for the growth of Your kingdom and the benefit of the salvation of Your people. We ask all this in the name of Christ who is our Savior. Amen.